This is the Epilog Audio Experience. The language and content on this podcast may be unsuitable for certain audiences. Listener discretion is advised. Welcome back to History Chatter. Last week we were talking about the beginning of boarding schools or English public schools in the 19th century. Not exactly the beginning, but the way they really took over the leadership of the British society and decided to cultivate certain values, uh, chief among them being the value of manliness or a certain kind of Christian masculinity. One of our listeners uh, has asked me since then to consider an episode on hill station boarding schools in India. How did these Indian boarding schools come about? Now that calls for a fascinating story. Um, the basic idea or the system of hill station boarding schools was introduced to India, of course, by the British. Before the hill station schools, um, the English kids or the children of covenanted East India Company employees would typically be sent back to England at the age of five to seven to board at a school um, and complete his education subsequently. A very famous example of this process is Rudyard Kipling, a very typical example, really. Kipling was born in Bombay. His father was then the curator of the museum. He was raised by his parents and an ayah. At the time, when he was five, he was fluently bilingual as a young child. He spent holidays with his relatives in England and did not return to India until he was in his late teens. Thousands of British families and multiple generations of families had their children in India. Indian ayahs um, raised them. They were sent home for an education and then brought back to India as covenanted employees of the East India Company Army at times or on some commercial uh, assignment. As the hill station schools developed, Anglo-Indian kids, of course, children of the Englishmen posted in India at the time, began to attend them. British kids began, uh, eventually became fewer and fewer in number and there was a major change after 1947. The schools eventually became institutions for educating middle-class Anglo-Indian children and the children of wealthy professional Indians. Of course, the wealthiest and the most influential Indian families, like the Nehru's and the Jinnas, sent their children to school in England. As a matter of fact, Winston Churchill and Prime Minister Jawaharlal Nehru went to the same preparatory school in England, the wealthiest and the most influential among Indians and the Brits. So there's some kind of an umbilical connection uh, that these public schools establish between influential Indians and the influential British men and women. We'll come to that shortly. Um, let's... let's um, start a little bit about Indian Public Schools Conference, which was established uh, in 1939. 
um, to fix and define the essential character of public schools, as um, was written, for instance, by sociologist uh, Alfred de Souza in his famous book on Indian public schools in 1974. In June 1939, the headmasters of four private North Indian schools met in Shimla to discuss, among other things, and I quote, the problems of residential schools, the formation of an association, the inadequate provision for examining in Indian languages, by the Cambridge Syndicate and a memorandum to be submitted to the Army Indianization Committee of the Central Legislative Assembly." Unquote. Now, the most concrete result of their, their discussions, uh, the meeting was of course chaired by the then Educational Commissioner with the Government of India, John Sergeant. The most uh, concrete result of their discussions was the formation of Indian Public Schools Conference. The conference um, now has over 50 public schools as members, uh, was modeled on a similar association of public schools in England. Here, I draw um, extensively from the research of uh, sociologist Sanjay Srivastava, who has written an excellent book on um, the Dune School. So um, the major leaders of IPSC or Indian Public Schools Conference at the initial stage were, of course, British headmasters of, um, of what were then uh, known as chiefs colleges um, established for the sons and um, words of princely families. The men who set up uh, IPSC were trying to adopt, and I quote, the good things of British public school life and administration to Indian ways of life and thought, and so build up public or residential schools in India with their roots springing from the culture of the country, fertilized by the experiences of residential school life in the UK, unquote. To qualify as a public school, therefore, a school must be elected a member of the Indian Public Schools Conference. To qualify for membership of IPSC, it must, and I quote, comply with a set of technical criteria relating to the academic freedom of the headmaster, conditions of service of the staff, facilities for games and extracurricular activities, and residential accommodation for a certain proportion of the student body." Unquote. Among the work conditions for teaching staff, which uh, characterize public schools, is the facility of free education for their children. So, uh, Technically, there could be women students in boys' schools as well. And uh, there's provision for accommodation on campus at a nominal rent for, for the staff. However, the overwhelming majority of, of the members of IPSC uh, consists of all male schools. Now, 
how did the idea of public school in India was was born? Of course, uh, there are two sides to it. One I have already mentioned, and I'll take up subsequently, which is to um, train and provide good education to the children of um, English officials in India. But in a more directly ideological sense, the public school in its Indian avatar or incarnation has been more than just the site of a curriculum for its students or or words. It represents a new kind of organization for the total transformation of a people. Srivastava uses the metaphor of a sieve. He says a public school pretty much functioned as a processing sieve to distill and absorb the ethos of a new age, the age of reason, with its ethic of rationality, reasoned and rational existence. When these schools were um, established early on and when they flourished in the 19th century, they are to be the bearers of rationality, reasoned and rational existence was in turn that which was tuned to the cadence of the regime of capital, says Srivastava. But but on a a more mundane level, for the British advocates of the colonial public school, um, there were added meanings to these grafts in colonial spaces. Um, Just as Englishmen born and reared in the colony could quite often be regarded as inferior to their counterparts nurtured in an English environment, the colonial public school's efforts at emulating the English ideal was supposed to produce an inferior version of of the British public schools. In British eyes, these schools remained the instruments of a labor of civilizing which must be carried out, though not with the expectation that it would lead to the emulation of the ideal. Rather, the colonial public school would pay homage to the ideal through never quite attaining its standards, never quite replicating its milieu. Here, Srivastava invokes the theory of mimicry of uh, the literary theorist Homi Bhava. But in a, in a more simpler level, um, it's that slippage, the slip between the carp and the tea. The boarding schools in India were to walk like the boarding schools in England, but they were never quite going to be good enough as the boarding schools in England. Herein lay the appeal of the overseas public schools to the British. An imitative culture pays respect to the declared original through both the fact of the initial act of imitation as well as through the ceaseless effort at attaining authenticity. The effort will be ceaseless because it is unattainable. Public schools in the non-European colonies could, in a perverse sense, be said to have aroused even greater fondness 
among the British. For these could even less hope to impinge on the ideal for reasons of race and climate. So, with the style and the energy becoming of paladins of empire, its chosen representatives tirelessly reiterated these messages of immanent superiority of the British. Srivastava gives a wonderful example. There was this instance when um, J. Rendell, headmaster of the English public school Winchester, who was dedicated to strengthening the spiritual growth of empire, was um, given a chance to select the Rhodesia scholars in 1924. He had to undertake a tour of various public schools outside England. And um, he was scathing in his criticism of public schools outside England. For example, he dismissed the well-known Canadian schools, such as the Upper Canada College, St. Andrews, Toronto, or University School, Victoria, as being of low quality. A Tasmanian candidate for the Rhodesia Scholarship was described as a star of the commerce school. And he concluded his remarks on South African public schools and their students with the words that these schools are not meant for Mowgli. Similar reservations were voiced at the state of affairs within the most prominent of, um, of Australian public schools and so on. So although, um, although the gentleman did not quite travel to India, the point is made that the public schools in the colonies were never quite going to be an equal to public schools in England, although they were to forever aspire to becoming equal. Now, this point was very clearly stated in uh, one of uh, the magazines in a prize distribution ceremony, as a matter of fact, in 1926 by the principal of Mao College in Ajmer. He said that it was essential, I quote, that the English element in the college should not be overwhelmed by numbers. If we are to approximate to our ideal of turning out products, something only faintly approximate to the English public school boy in acquirements and in character. Now, if you remember the famous Michele's Minutes where the education system in India was to turn out Englishmen not in color, but in tests and preferences, the public schools were probably the most prominent site where the Indians were to be turned into Englishmen, or of course, uh, Englishmen themselves were turned into, to be turned into more authentic Englishmen. So this was the set of attitudes which sort of formalized the relationship of public school in England to those in the colonies. These attitudes reflected both the intellectual fervor of the age of Darwin and Bentham and the missionary imperatives of a rising Christianity. 
both of these took on a special significance and inspired particular commitment to the public school project when the theater of action was in the tropics. But uh, how did these public schools relate to Indians? The National Identity Project in post-independence India has largely been formulated and conducted by a relatively small group of political, social, and cultural functionaries. These may be characterized as the ideological heirs of the early moderate nationalists, and I quote, who accepted as the basis for their thinking about the future of India, many of the formulations of 19th century British liberalism, unquote. Indeed, um, the founders and the early movers of uh, Doon School and many other public schools were um, part of a rising Indian liberalism. The Indian public school has been an indispensable adjunct to the idea of Indian liberalism, embodying and refining the philosophical grounds of its discourse. So the construction of the urban post-colonial Indian identity owes a considerable debt intellectually and philosophically to one of the most comprehensively adopted of all British institutions in India, or the public schools. This identity has remained remarkably unfragmented across widely differing political positions. United through an abiding commitment to a modernist paradigm of being on the part of the intelligentsia, of various sheens, of course, uh, schools such as Doon or Sherwood have contributed to this, producing several generations of a post-independence middle class steeped in the boys' own tales of the all-conquering modernist male hero, astride the white steed of development theory, the guardian of the free market and the bridge builder between a progressive West and a reluctantly regressive India. I, of course, quote Sanjay Srivastava here. Now, of course, Srivastava writes about the Dune School as a prototype rather than an all-powerful institution. And uh, he also speaks of um, a national identity project which sustains the interest of the majority of the population, uh, not necessarily of the majority in participation, but in interest. But the focus of his discussion um, is concerned with a section of the population, the, the, the section that really offers opinion for whom the concern of a national identity is a consciously articulated position. And... Um, which, of course, has many avenues of public dialogues and debates. But aside from the fact that these public schools um, essentially caters to, to the making of a national elite, the elite that makes policies 
and takes decisions about India's development and identity and represents India world over, it is also time to look at the early projects. I'll take up a brief history at the stage of Lawrence School Sanawar. I do this because Lawrence School Sanawar is probably the oldest co-education school in the world, co-education boarding school in the world. It started in 1847. And it also illustrates the process that I briefly hinted above, the ways in which senior British or East India Company officials were concerned about educating the children of Englishmen posted in India. I'll be um, quoting extensively from the biography of Henry Lawrence, who had established the Lawrence School at Sanawar. But uh, let me first quote from a letter by Lady Edwardes, the wife of uh, Lawrence's biographer. And she writes, and I quote, In the repose at Nepal was planned and matured the scheme that first gave the English soldiers' children a home in the hills of India and rescued them from the heat and danger, both physical and moral, of barrack life in the plains." You can very clearly see the motives. Henry Lawrence at the time was um, a resident at the Nepal Darbar, And I'll very shortly quote um, a letter from Henry Lawrence himself about the history of of, um, the school. And here's um, Lawrence in July writing to um, Reverend Parker. Lawrence School had been established seven years ago and he's looking back at his labor of love. And I'm going really to quote Lawrence in his own words. My dear Mr. Parker, Lawrence writes, in the history, I dwell on the barrack life of children and show the number rescued from barracks, stating also that we have never forgotten that our original object was to get children from barracks, but that their parents have less appreciated the boom than warrant other officers. He's, of course, looking at um, school at Mount Abu. Um, First thoughts, as far as I can recollect, Lawrence writes, were on my return from Kabul in December 1852. On finding myself appointed superintendent of the Doom with charge of Missouri. My reign, however, there was only for a month, and when I returned for a year to the Sikh states, that year was one of so much toil that I had no time to think of extra work, and in December 1843, I was moved to Nepal. During 1844 and 1845, we corresponded with several persons interested in the matter. Mr. Thompson, I think, was the first, and... uh, was at least one of whom I most dependent, but his response was cooler than I expected. He said there was already an asylum in Calcutta, the European female uh, asylum, etc. He, 
General Persons, Mr. Martin Gubbins, Mr. Atherton, and others gave liberal donations or subscriptions. But many to whom we wrote gave no answer. About July 1845, I offered the managers of the upper and lower orphan school some pecuniary help if they would move to a hill station. I got a cool answer to the effect that the scheme was impracticable. I then wrote officially to government, suggesting an asylum. After some months, I received an official reply, sending me the opinions of the officers commanding artillery regiments and the two European regiments, with a few lines to the effect that I'd perceived that my plan was not feasible. I saw nothing of the kind. The commandment of artilleries later was favorable, and one of the others was little less so. The writer of the third said he could not give an opinion. He might have said with the writer of the government later to me that he did not care to trouble himself in the matter. Such was the state of affairs when I joined the army of the Sutledge in 1845. In March of that year, a few days after the army has reached Lahore, Sir Hugh Goff kindly consented to attend the meeting at which Sir Henry Smith, Colonel Grant, Colonel Havelock, Colonel Birch, Lieutenant Edwards and other officers were present. At that meeting, at my request, many more commissioned officers of all persuasions attended. I explained my views and wishes that the asylum was for all soldiers' children and especially for those in the barracks, that the Bible must be read by all and Bible instructions be given to all, but that Romanists and dissenters might be instructed by their own pastors on fixed days and under fixed arrangements. Officers and soldiers were generally satisfied. The only dissent was from Henry Smittle, who proposed a division of the fund and the establishment of two asylums. I replied that he could establish a Roman Catholic asylum if he liked, but I could not consent to the appropriation of any portion of the funds collected by me to any institution but one. Colonel Edwards thinks that I yielded rule such and such to Sir Henry Smith's outcry, but I'm sure this is a mistake and believe I took the rules in rough to the meeting and that there was no substantial alterations made. The proceedings of the meeting are probably among the asylum records. During the hot weather in August 1846, in company with Colonel Boilu of the engineers and I think uh, Lieutenant Beecher of the engineers and Lieutenant Hodson of the fusiliers, I searched for a site around Kasoli and on the fir tree ridge in the old road to Subatu. My object being to have the asylum within my own jurisdiction, the cis Sutlej states being under me as resident at Lahore. Musuri was not so. We nearly fixed on a spar of the Kasoli hill but eventually selected the hill of Sanawar as combining most of the requisites for an asylum. That is isolation with ample space and plenty of water at a good height in a healthy locality 
not far from European troops. The selection was most fortunate and I doubt not I owe it to my companions. In November of that year, 1846, Maharaja Gulab Singh offered me a lakh of rupees for the asylum. I told him that if he still wished to give the money after an interval of 12 months to inform me by later, and I'd ask for government sanction. Two or three times within the year, the offer was repeated, and eventually I asked and obtained sanction. The money was at once funded and still remains so. In 1854, Lawrence write that it is our only capital. As soon as the site was fixed, the building was commenced. Lieutenant Hodson took much trouble with him. In March 1847, the asylum was opened under the charge of Miss George Lawrence, wife of Colonel George Lawrence, with about 20 children. 17 of them having been sent from Lahore by me eight of them being Roman Catholics. Mrs. Lawrence very successfully superintended the asylum till the cold weather of 1847. An apothecary in the service, Mr. Healy, had been selected as medical officer and assistant master. He aided Mrs. Lawrence and on her departure remained in full charge till the arrival of Reverend Mr. Parker in February 1848. During the year 1846-47, Mrs. Henry Lawrence advertised for masters and a governess. After much correspondence and many personal interviews with parties desiring employment, as also with persons interested in education, she selected Mr. William Parker, who had been recommended to her by Mr. Tufnell as superintendent of the asylum and resolved for the present not to send out a governess or matron. Mr. Parker had many interviews with Lady Lawrence and eventually embarked with his family and reached Calcutta in December, meeting Colonel Henry Lawrence on his way to England. Mr. Parker was ordained by the Bishop of Calcutta and started for his England journey to Sanawar. So that um, is the story of how Lawrence School Sanawar came into being. Well, similar stories could be repeated for several of these schools. For instance, Sherwood in Nainital was born in July 1867. It grew out of the need for a good school in a salubrious climate for the education of European boys of modest means. The project was the brainchild of uh, Dr. Condon, Mr. H. S. Reed, and others, and under the patronage of uh, retired Reverend Robert Millman, the seventh Metropolitan of India. So the idea took shape as the Nainital Diocesan School, as Sharwood was once called, and I quote the website of Sharwood School, their Old Boys Association. Now, what happened to these schools after, after independence, after 1947? How did they change? Of course, I've already referred briefly to Sivastava's uh, thesis about the ways in which the Indian um, wealthy um, elites 
took to them like ducks to water and more or less carried forward the same legacy. But there did arise a sufficient uh, crisis. I had been to the Mayo College uh, in 20, early 2020, and one of the landmark events of their history, they preserve it in their archive, is the initiative of the headmaster who, who helped them navigate the divide of 1947. I will give an example, a more um, empirically solid example from um, the European schools in Kodai Canal. Um, a research on Kodai Canal notes that in 1970s or late 60s, um, these schools, of course, had a number of European students and, uh, and British, certainly. So um, in 1971, um, one may be tempted to claim that because of the European-originated uh, schools in Kodai have uh, thus far continued with a steady expansion program since independence, this process is likely to be kept up. So most of these schools more or less carried on with Indian patronage and so forth. However, radical change is coming, the observer noted, to some of the schools, even though it may not be immediately apparent, the change will depend on the degree of Indianization which has taken place among the schools. And she gives examples. At Presentation Convent at Kodai Canal, the increase in number of schools has been steady from 141 in 1946 to 237 in 1969. High teaching standards and comparatively low costs have made the school attractive to Europeans, Eurasians, as well as British and Indians desiring an English language school system. After independence, Anglo-Indians, and this time the term Anglo-Indians refers to uh, those born out of a mixed parentage. Um, so after independence, Anglo-Indians were given a choice of citizenship. Some elected British status, others Indian. As the convent members have uh, numbers have increased through the years since independence, the ratio of blue-eyed blonde to the dark-eyed brunettes has decreased. Many convent parents belong to Indian communities in Southeast Asian and African countries, and some have chosen to adopt the nationality of their new homes. An analysis of the school enrollment in 1969 showed 71% Indian and 21% British forming the basis. The remaining 8% included approximately 3% Tanzanian, 2% Malaysian and 2% Sinhalese and 1% Canadian. The diminishing number of Europeans residing in South Asia and South India will probably make no further difference to the school situation in Kodai. The American and Swedish schools, on the other hand, are considerably affected by the foreign population who provide the nucleus of students for their schools. It has been difficult, particularly for American and non-British European missionaries, to obtain visas to work in India since the early 50s. Rather than evangelists, most of the missionaries have been specialists in some branch of uh, medical, educational, agricultural, 
or industrial missions during those uh, last two decades. Contrary to expectations, nevertheless, the enrollment at Kodai School did not decrease. Instead, it rose steadily from 139 in uh, 1947 to 372 in 1969. Some of the grades became too large to be taught in one classroom by one teacher. And the high school particularly expanded with an ever-increasing proportion of uh, non-missionary students. More electives were offered and more classroom space was required. Temporary arrangements were made to use room in KMU and chapel. And in 1968, a building engineer arrived as a member of the school staff so that sound planning could be made for a physical expansion of the school plant. Before work on the main structure commenced, however, there came a somewhat large and rather sudden drop in enrollment for the new school starting June 1969. Building operations were therefore held in abeyance. If the enrollments were to continue to decline in this way over a period of three to four years, schools would no longer be a viable unit. An analysis of nationalities and its student exposes the dependence of the school on India's foreign population. Now, this is, of course, uh, the condition in Kodai Canal in 1970, that was 50 years ago. In the last 30 or 40 years, the condition has substantially changed. Liberalization has arrived. The Indian middle class has had a little bit of money over the last 30 years. The, the expense of professional class has increased significantly. And the aspiration and the desire to send one's children to a high quality education in the hills under the tutelage of teachers who had been to England or at least um, to very um, high credential educational institutions abroad has, if anything, increased among the Indian middle classes. So I do not see any decrease in the prospects or future of public schools in India. On the contrary, as the size of the aspiring Indian middle class continues to grow, these exclusive private schools in the hills and their numbers have gone exponentially over the last uh, 20, 30 years, are going to be and going to remain these isolated spaces of producing leaders and influential Indians over the next few decades for sure. This is History Chatter and I take your leave looking forward to an equally fascinating episode, trying to put together an equally fascinating episode next week. Do listen in and write back with your feedback. Meanwhile, drop in at History Chatter Epilogue Media website and in your favorite podcast streaming platforms. Thank you very much.